hope you enjoy this message from St. Martin C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. Good evening, everyone. I'm Becky. Welcome to those I've met before and for those that I haven't. It's really awesome to have you here tonight. So what do you think of when I say the word uncertainty? Do you remember the feeling you had just after lockdown was announced, level four, March last year? You can close your eyes if you want. I want you to think about the feelings of uncertainty, the unknown. What would the next month look like? What was going to happen in our families, in our city, in our country during that time? What would things look like after lockdown finished? Financially, health-wise, Other countries had already gone into lockdown overseas, so we had a bit of an idea of what to expect, but also so much of it was unknown. And there's still uncertainty now. What's happening with the vaccine? We don't know what's happening with new variants of the virus. And most importantly, what will happen with the Olympics? Uh, The last year has not gone at all how we thought it would go, and what will happen next? So tonight, I'll be talking about a people group in the Bible. They were in a different situation, but would have had similar feelings of uncertainty. I'll be talking about the promise that God made to that group. He promised to meet them when they searched for him, and this would have brought such comfort. I'll be talking about how God will meet us, but it might not be how we expect. And this is important for us to understand, because when you search for God, in the midst of uncertainty, you can be certain that you'll find him. So this this sermon series is called Highlighted, and each week we're each focusing on verses that have changed the world, or changed our world. If I say the specific verse I'll be talking about tonight is in Jeremiah, or more specifically Jeremiah 29, what verse comes to mind for you all? I feel like most of you would guess Jeremiah 29.11. It's one of the most well-known and most quoted Bible verses. In fact, I looked it up, and according to Bible Gateway, it was the second most searched for Bible verse last year. Second only to the immensely popular John 3.16. In fact, uh, Jeremiah 29.11 came up on my YouVersion Bible app yesterday as verse of the day. Very timely. So tonight, I want to focus on a verse. It's three verses after Jeremiah 29.11. It's Jeremiah 29.14, as this has been a verse that has been really important to me. And it reads, I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and bring you home again to your own land. To understand this verse, and particularly the second half of it, I think it's helpful to look at Jeremiah as a whole and the circumstances this book is in before we focus on this verse in particular. Now, sometimes in the middle of uncertainty, we can forget to go looking for God. As I'll show you, Israel developed a pattern of not looking for God during periods of uncertainty. So Israel was God's chosen people And the Bible follows this chosen family from Abraham and the covenant made between Abraham and God. 
The covenant was that Abraham and his descendants must obey God, and in return, God would guide them, protect them, and give them the promised land of Israel. So the Jewish people were God's children. Oh, I already said that. So Jacob was Abraham's grandson, and his name was changed to Israel. He had 12 sons, and they each had children, multiplied and became a large group. This large family became slaves in Egypt, and God chose to free them using Moses. They then moved to the Promised Land by taking the very long and very slow way. And by this time, the 12 sons of Jacob had grown into the 12 tribes of Israel, and they each occupied portions of the chosen land. After settling in the Promised Land, neighboring nations tried to invade and oppress the Israelites. And God saved the people by designating judges or rulers to lead the people and ward off the enemies. Then came the period of kings. So the first was King Saul, and then King David, and his son, King Solomon. And after Solomon dies, Israel was split into two, with the 11 tribes in the north and Judah in the south. Godly kings are quite rare, but they're more common in Judah than they are in the northern tribes in Israel. And as time goes on, the people become more and more disobedient. They're not listening to prophets like Isaiah, wanting them to turn back to God. Eventually, the tribes in the north, Israel, are taken into exile by Assyria, and the prophet Jeremiah warns the tribe of Judah and all the officials in the capital, Jerusalem, to turn from their ways. He sees that they follow God half-heartedly, in word but not in deed, despite seeing what had already happened to the northern tribes. I tell you this background to emphasize the importance of the land and its connection to the people and the promise of God. So this is where we find ourselves when we're reading Jeremiah. The question is, who was Jeremiah? And I know what you're thinking, and no, he was not a bullfrog. Um, he was a prophet, and as you could probably guess, we learn a lot from him about, we learn a lot about him in the book of Jeremiah. He lived after the prophets Isaiah and Micah, whose warnings had not been listened to by the Jewish people. He lived between 627 and 586 BC so a long time ago, and he had a long 40-year prophetic career, and it started when he was just 17. He lived during the rule of the last seven kings of Judah, and his prophetic career was during the last five. The book of Jeremiah is one of the longest books of the prophets, second to Isaiah. It contains the teachings of Jeremiah, both from writings he has done and also collected by his secretary, Baruch. Now, Jeremiah was not a popular guy. And that's a bit of an understatement. Imagine an Eeyore of a friend group, but to be honest, he wasn't even in the friend group. (laughs) And part of the reason why he was so unpopular was the message he was saying. Repent, turn back to God, come on, say something new. But he didn't. He persisted with the message because this is the message God wanted to tell his people, and he was being obedient. Nowadays, the name Jeremiah means wet blanket, because of this depressing message he had on repeat. But in Hebrew, in Hebrew, Jeremiah is an interesting name. It can mean both to build up or to tear down. It's the same phrase with opposite meanings. In English, the terms raise, to raise up, or raise, R-A-Z-E, are similar. They sound the same, but have opposite meanings. And as names are in the Bible, this was significant. It's essentially what Jeremiah's message was, 
If you repent, then God will build you up and he'll tear people down if they disobey. Jeremiah would not meet the world's standards of success. No one listened to his message, but I think God would have a different measure of success. To remain faithful despite opposition for so long is amazing. So let's tackle the passage we're focusing on tonight. The following is part of a letter that Jeremiah sends to the people who have moved to Babylon from Jerusalem and are in exile. So it's Jeremiah 29, 4 to 14, and it reads, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Verse 8. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams, because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised and will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a hope and a future. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. So let's unpack this passage. The start of the passage is Jeremiah talking to the Judeans who have been exiled to Babylon. They are currently living in Babylon and he's telling them to settle down to pray for the city they are living in. He encourages them to become embedded in their life in the new country, telling them to marry, build homes, plant gardens, all of these things which indicate they'll be there for a while. God is telling them to pray for the people in the city, wherever they are living, as not all of the exiles are in Babylon. Some are living elsewhere, but they're also unable to return to their homeland. God telling the Judeans to pray for Babylon can seem similar to when Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. However, in this circumstance, it's not so simple. It can seem that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's leader, are the enemy and that the Jewish people are the victims. However, Judah had been warned for years by the prophets about what would happen if they don't repent and turn to God. This passage states that if the place flourishes, flourishes, so will they. They shouldn't pray for destruction because this is where they're going to live for the next 70 years and it will affect them as well. Also indicating that although they are away from their home and place of worship, they are called to live out lives as God's people regardless of location. God is using Babylon to show judgment on his people, but Babylon will also be punished for their atrocities. By using Babylon, God is not saying their behaviour is okay. And later on in Jeremiah, there are prophecies regarding the other countries, like Babylon, and what will happen as a result of their sins. So the next section is addressing the false prophets. It says, 
Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them. Jeremiah is referring to a few prophets who would have been quite well known to the people. And they had been saying that the demise of Babylon and the return of the exiles to their homeland was going to happen soon. The next verse, 10, says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come for you and, my, and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Jeremiah was very clear that it would be 70 years, not sooner. This refers back to Jeremiah 25:11, where Jeremiah had prophesied that Babylon would overcome Judah and that the exile would last 70 years. Jeremiah 25:11 reads, that This entire land will become a desolate wasteland, and Israel and her neighbours will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So why did, the, why did God give the Israelites 70 years? One reason may be to give them certainty during this period of uncertainty. One Israelite who was encouraged by this was Daniel, who we know from the lion's den. Daniel was one of the Jews living in exile in Babylon. In chapter 9-3 of Daniel, we learn that he was one of the, he was um, looking through one of the scrolls which contained Jeremiah's prophecies. He was encouraged that the prophecy said exile would last 70 years, as he realized that time was nearly up. So verse 11 is where we, it says the promise is one to give them a hope and a future. And for the people, this would have been encouraging to know that even though they're in exile, God had a plan for them. Much, po- much more profound than if you take this verse out of context, as is commonly done. God knows the future. It doesn't mean that we will be spared pain. And for the Israelites, many of them, it meant that the rest of their lives would be spent in exile. It would be tempting to believe that God had forgotten them. Tempting to believe that his thoughts were evil towards them. So it would have been encouraging that although it's a long time and the situation seemed hopeless, what appeared to be evil is working a good end. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Or as the NLT says, in those days when you pray, I will listen. So I've repeated the number 70 a lot. And why 70 in particular? Well, Calvin's commentary states that the Israelites were so disobedient, it would, it would not have taken a short amount of time for them to turn back to God. If it was a short exile, they wouldn't have changed their behavior. Although they were not in Jerusalem and could not perform the appointed temple rituals, God would still listen when they prayed. Their prayer and God's answer were part of their future and hope, and he would allow them back into the promised land. For Daniel, as I mentioned before, he was one of the Israelites who was exiled for the 70 years. This was a promise to him and his people that God sees them. He has a plan for their people. He will be with them while they are not in Israel. And when they are far from home, when they are not able to worship as they please, and there is uncertainty. In Daniel prays, and by doing this, the chapter Daniel 9 verse 3 is the fulfillment of verse 29-12. He is calling on God's name, and God promises to listen. Verse 13, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So when it's talking about seeking, it's talking about prayer. And wholeheartedly doesn't mean perfection, as perfection is not achievable, unfortunately. 
It means to pray to him, to look for him with sincerity and without divided motives. Similar to in Isaiah 58 verse 9, which says, um, then when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I am here, he will quickly reply. When people call to God, he will hear you. And then verse 14, it starts off, I will be found by you. It is repeating the same idea, but instead of seeking, it is like he is revealing himself. I will be found with, of you. It has references to two verses in Isaiah. The first one is Isaiah 55, 6, which says, Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. And Isaiah 65, verse 1, which says, I was ready to respond, but no one asked for help. I was ready to be found, but no one was looking for me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that did not call on my name. Search for him as men search for gold, silver, and hid treasure. Search for him with eagerness. God's promise doesn't just give them certainty that exile will end after 70 years. It gives them the greater certainty that he will be found by them when they seek him. The latter part of verse 14 gives a tangible element to the promise. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and bring you home again to your own land. It's a promise that as a people, they will, they will be returned to their homeland. The majority of the people are in captivity in Babylon, but some are in lands other than Babylon in, in exile. And it shows that God listens to the requests of his people and answers them in his own time and way. The next few chapters in, in Jeremiah after chapter 29 elaborate on what this promise means and what restoration to the promised land looks like. So in summary, looking at these verses between 10 and 14, it's saying that the future of the Israelites rests on God's promise. 12 and 13 are a renewal of the promise, and 14 is a summary of the promise. And God's promise is a promise of hope, a future, and restoration. But this restoration is not going to be within the lifetimes of the generation of Israelites who have been exiled. So in the midst of their uncertainty, he says, I will be found by you. So in this passage, God promises Israel if they search for him wholeheartedly, they will find him. Does this apply to just the Israelites? Or does it apply to us now? In this letter, it's speaking to the Israelites, but it applies to the whole church, including us today. He will show favor to those who flee to him, to those who seek him during uncertainty. This promise, as you might expect, is repeated throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. There are multiple statements where he reveals that he wants us to look for him, and if you do, you'll find him and know him deeper. In Deuteronomy, Moses writes, but from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and your soul. That's Deuteronomy 4.29. And in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, it says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. And this terminology is also similar to the verse when Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. And that's in both Matthew 7 and Luke 11. 
And this isn't just for people meeting God for the first time, it's for people wanting to get to know him deeper. For God, what, what, what a great prayer this must be, his children seeking his heart. Last year during lockdown, I found the uncertainty quite difficult. And I have a tendency when feeling uncertain or anxious to run from those emotions, to use unhelpful strategies to cope with the anxious thoughts. And in my room, I have a large, squishy teal chair, and I spend a lot of time in it journaling. And this verse, I will be found by you, brought me a lot of comfort when I was sitting there, knowing that I would not search in vain. I could be certain that when I went looking for God, I would find him. I love that in this verse, I will be found by you. There is such a security in the fact he will always be with me when I seek him. But the way he is found and the way he will reveal himself to me, that is different. I can trust he will be there, but it may be in ways I don't expect. When I first looked at this verse, I gravitated towards the first half and ignored the second half because I thought, I'm not a captive, I am not far from my home nation. And that's why I think the context is so important to understand the um, full verse. I encourage you guys, call on him and seek him. Let us not be like the Israelites in Isaiah where it was written, I was ready to respond, but no one asked for help. I was ready to be found, but no one was looking for me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that did not call on my name. Let us not be like Israel who did not seek God in uncertainty. Each time, come with the confident expectation that he will be found by you and be with you. But saying that, there is no point having expectations about how he will reveal himself to you. Let's be expectant, but not have expectations. When you search for God in the midst of uncertainty, you can be certain that you will find him. Thank you. So everyone can stand, and I'll just pray. And then we'll have a song. What a beautiful name. So, dear Lord, I thank you for this passage, Lord. I thank you that you are unchanging, Lord, and what you have said before stands today. I thank you that you know our hearts, Lord, and I pray that you will meet us where we're at in the uncertainty. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.